Okay, welcome to the podcast, Agents of Hope. My name is Dr. Nazam Hussain, and this is the final podcast in a series of three. My first podcast looked at reading difficulties with Joe Elliott, and the second podcast looked at visible learning with John Hattie. And I'm really pleased to have Jonathan Solity joining me today. I first came across Jonathan's work were at an AEP conference, an Association of Educational Psychology conference, and his work particularly struck with me because I think at that time, maybe it was about six or seven years ago, at that time I was really reflecting on my practice and really thinking about how I could support schools in helping learners who were categorised as having special education needs and really promoting their early maths English skills. So, not going to talk, we're going to discuss some of those concepts and issues as we go through the podcast, but I'm going to allow Jonathan just to briefly introduce himself and then hopefully talk a bit more about those big ideas. So, so pleased to have you here, Jonathan. I know we've spoken privately a lot over the last five or six years. We've thought about bits of work, that possible ideas of working together, but um, I'm not going to try to introduce you, so this is your space. Can you tell us a bit about you, Jonathan? Thank you. Okay, Nazan. Thanks very much for inviting me onto the podcast. I feel quite honoured uh, that you've uh, selected me. I um, I actually come from um, from Leeds, uh, not far from where you live, and uh, I taught my I taught in Bradford for a couple of years. I um, became an EP in the days when you had to teach for two years. I taught at a, a first school, which um, was for ch- uh, children aged five to nine. And I taught the equivalent of years three and four. I did that for two years. And then I went and did the Birmingham Educational Psychology course, after which I got a job in Walsall, which was a very exciting time. It was a highly innovative service. And I was there for five years. I then left um, Walsall and moved to Warwick, where I lectured in educational psychology for just under 23 years, which is where I did most of the research that uh, is of interest to people. And I left Warwick and then set up a consultancy with a colleague, Helen Wall, uh, in around 2006, where we carried on doing exactly the same kind of work as I'd done at Warwick, but without having to lecture alongside it. So devoted most of my time to researching effective ways of teaching reading, maths and writing and writing about it and doing consultancy work in schools. Fantastic. Um... So I think it's, you know, it's usually the podcast we kind of follow a certain kind of structure and briefly we spoke a bit about that, about where to kind of start. So, um, and I have, you know, over the years I have read a lot of your papers, which I'll reference in the blurb that listeners can access to. So think about where you want to start on that kind of journey. Where, where shall we? It probably started when I was a teacher in Bradford. Because on my PGCE course at Liverpool, we'd had one afternoon on teaching reading. Because I was going to teach in year three, which is effectively the old junior department, it wasn't expected that anyone who was working in key stage two would know how to teach reading. And I certainly didn't have a clue when I started. And I taught at a very progressive um, first school where the idea was that I would learn as I went along how to teach reading. 
And I had five or six children who were not reading fluently, and one little girl in particular, Linda, who'd been given an IQ test and she scored 70, and which wasn't low enough to send her to a special school, like her brother, who had gone to a special school. And I thought, I just decided uh, I'd test out the, the, uh, whether or not it was realistic or helpful to have an IQ score attached to a child's profile, or whether it was worth telling a very naive young teacher, this is uh, her IQ, don't expect anything because she has a low IQ and she's really borderline SEM. And I kind of made it my mission uh, to make sure I taught Linda how to read and write. And it was even more exciting because I didn't have a clue. So I was doing it by trial and error. And I don't know how successful my career has been in terms of my impact on children. But I certainly had an impact on Linda. And I put in a huge amount of effort. So did Linda and the other five children who I brought back every lunchtime for a whole academic year for five minutes each using the Ladybird scheme. And I taught them basic sounds and basic sight vocabulary. But by the end of the year, Linda could read fluently. And the head teacher was very impressed and thought there was a problem with the psychologist and the assessment rather than attributing Linda's success to, to me and my high quality teaching. But it was highly influential that you could have a score and have diagnosed the child as having a difficulty in learning and yet she still learned to read really quickly. So whereas other children in the class had taken three years to master reading, she cracked it in a year. And she was meant to have a difficulty in learning. And I don't think I was successful as successful with the other five children, but they still made excellent progress. And that set me up really well for going on to my educational psychology course uh, at Birmingham. Fantastic. So is that, I suppose, this is where you start to think about what are the environments, teaching practices, instructional practices that have the greatest impact? Okay, so I was doing a version of what would now be called direct explicit teaching. It wasn't direct instruction, as Engelman um, would have described it, but it was certainly explicit and um, direct, and I followed the principle of a little bit often, five minutes a day. So when I went to Birmingham, I had an open mind, believe it or not, about the value of IQ testing. But over and over again during my experiences on the course, and it was a very impressive course, uh, we began to learn about precision teaching, and it was an exciting time for educational psychologists. This was in the uh, the late 70s. Uh, there was Bill Gillam had just published Reconstructing Educational Psychology, which was reacting against the use of IQ tests for uh, psych educational psychologists. Melainsko and Dave Tweddle had just published Preventing Classroom Failure, which was about an objectives approach to teaching and learning. Ted Raybold, who was one of the course tutors, alongside uh, David Leach, who was another course tutor, had just published a book also looking at how to teach lower achieving pupils effectively. And so... I wasn't really encouraged to give IQ tests. I was encouraged to use something equivalent to a, a curriculum-based assessment. And that influenced the work I did on, on that, my uh, field work uh, on the Birmingham course. And then subsequently when I got into my job at Walsall. And the whole focus was on prevention. It was about curriculum-based assessment, preventing difficulties, unless to do with um, assessing and diagnosing the nature of children's problems. And I had 
a large number of opportunities to do that in Walsall, and I never gave an IQ test. In the five years that I worked in Walsall, I never had the need to give one. And it, it was it was an exciting time in, in various ways. But one thing that happened was that, um, that the head teacher of the local special school, and I had a patch in, in theory, should have been sending children to this special school. But its numbers dropped in the five years that I worked there from around 120 to 30. And the inspector for special education was going ballistic because he couldn't cope with the fact that the numbers were dropping. And I didn't have an issue with the special school, but my issue was around making sure that it was the right children that went there. So it shouldn't be children who could demonstrate really excellent progress through an assessment through teaching approach. And many of the children that I saw or who were referred to me did make excellent progress. It wasn't anything that I was doing that was different. It's just that we were able to pinpoint where to start teaching. The teachers were given guidance on what to teach and the pupils made excellent progress. Okay, so that takes us to your in Walsall now and working as an educational psychologist. You're building up some knowledge around instructional practices. What are the best ways to teach reading? And where does your journey take you next then? So all of that was well and good and really exciting. But the one issue was the role of task analysis. So task analysis, when applied to teaching children physical skills, was absolutely fine because they didn't need to generalise the skills that they'd been taught to other areas of the curriculum. If you could tie, your sh tie a shoe, it didn't matter that it didn't relate to um, putting on your coat or doing up your tie. But when it came to reading and maths, you wanted to try and ensure that what you taught children was generalisable. And task analysis didn't do that. So I was lucky in going to a course at the Worcester College of Higher Education. In, there were two courses, one in 81 and one in 82, where the DISTAR team came over. So DISTAR is Direct, direct Instruction Systems for Teaching Arithmetic and Reading. And it didn't have a good name because it was uh, whole class teaching, children giving a, a, a responding together. And... I was encouraged to go by my predecessor, who'd been in Walsall, who organised the conference. And I went along, not expecting a great deal, but it was a revelation. Because the distar people that came over, Wes Becker, Doug Carnine, Gene Osborne, who wrote language, Bob Dixon, who'd written the this, this spelling programme, they didn't talk about the distar programme so much as the underlying principles. And they talked about their focus on teaching generalisable skills. And that was a game changer for me because it moved me on from task analysis to something that was much more useful and generalizable. And so for my remaining time in Walsall from 81 to 84, I focused on looking at teaching children generalizable skills. And Ted Raybold and I developed an in-service training course that ran for 18 weeks, uh, where uh, during which we taught ch uh, teachers about precision teaching in task analysis, but also about direct instruction and how to teach generalizable skills. So that was the, perhaps one of the most important um, moments of my life, because my initial publications were on precision teaching, which is all well and good, but it, it can end up telling you how to teach more effectively, but it take, could take a long time to get there. 
So I think there's a huge difference um, between precision teaching and precision monitoring. Some people talk about precision monitoring, which is a, just, a, as I understand it, a way of assessing pupils through daily timed assessments. But precision teaching aimed at giving you feedback on teaching and refining it if children didn't make progress. So eventually you'd end up teaching them the right things. But DI made it much quicker. It said, look, if you focus on teaching this small number of skills in this particular way, then children will make good progress. And, you know, fortunately, I found that that is what happened. So the actual content and what you teach had a big impact on pupil progress. And you didn't have to look at the specific individual characteristics of the learners? Okay, and that, that, that's absolutely right. And that, that's something that's characterised all of the work I've, I've ever done. Um, we've never needed to, um, I mean, we have assessed pupils in various ways on various measures for research purposes, but it's not remotely useful when it comes to planning instruction. And so most of my explanations to teachers as to why children hadn't learned were based on the, the nature of the curriculum which I think is anathema to many educational psychologists. They like to think, that, it, or don't like to think, that children's failure to learn can just be down to the curriculum and the way that they're taught. But as we may discuss later, the, the research I've done more recently demonstrates that that is, that is clearly the case. So, yeah, knowing what to teach is fundamental. Um, and that, that's what I learned from direct instruction and its applications. And the other thing, I suppose we are going to be talking about this later, but I just want to clarify for the learners around assessment through teaching, what we understand by that phrase, assessment through teaching. Okay, so for me, assessment through teaching is an ongoing going process. It's very different to response to intervention. So there's much research uh, that talks about evaluating children's progress through res um, response to intervention. RTI, response to intervention, is based on a th the three-wave model or three-tier model that you go for quality teaching first, then you teach in small groups, and if children still don't progress, you end up teaching them on a one-to-one -one basis. And to my knowledge, there is no evidence suggesting that if, if you teach children on a one-to-one -one basis, but still teach the same content that you were teaching them on a, a whole class basis, that it will make any difference. So I, I'm not comfortable or think there's much value in the three-tier system. And assessment through teaching is a model that can be applied quite widely. And it focuses, first of all, on getting the curriculum right. And that's where direct instruction would come in. Then you place children on the curriculum through uh, criteria and reference assessments, determine how to teach, which is influenced by Herring and Eaton's 1978 instructional hierarchy. So for different stages of teaching, such as developing accuracy or developing fluency, generalization and application, there are different teaching procedures associated with each of those stages. And then finally, pupils' progress is assessed. And the assessment is, in principle, ipsative. In other words, you're assessing children against their previous performance. And when we've begun to do that, and looked at children who are allegedly lower attainers in classrooms, their rate of progress is no different from higher attainers, you know, when they were at the same point in their learning. So assessment through teaching isn't trying to find out 
whether or not children succeed or not on a particular programme, the assumption is children will succeed if the teaching is right. And again, that's anathema to many people because ultimately the responsibility comes back on you as the EP. If as, as an EP, you're recommending assessment through teaching or using it, you're saying to teachers, well, this is ultimately my responsibility. I, with you, will find out the most effective ways of teaching this child. But let's assume that if we get it right, the children will learn. And that provides a very different starting point for assessment you know, when you assume that the children can learn from assessing to find out what is wrong. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But as you were speaking, it just got me thinking about we get, as EP, sometimes you get asked to assess children on an individual level, but actually nobody really talks to me about assessing a curriculum or assessing a programme or assessing a, an instructional sequence. Which is, which is a really, it kind of shifts the focus away from the individual to something more greater than that, something a lot more systemic. Actually, I think the final report, I, I didn't write many reports, but I think the final report I wrote as a psychologist in Walsall was for a particular child. And um, in the report, I said, look, it's no wonder this child is not learning to read because he's being th- taught three different things by three different people. There's the class teacher teaching one thing. There is the school, as and they were called remedial teachers in those days, the school remedial teacher was teaching something entirely different. And a third person who came from the school, the, the local authority visiting remedial service was recommending something else. So the fact that, that this particular child was confused did not come as a surprise instructionally. And, and it seems to me that psychologists educational psychologists, that is, rarely look at the curriculum. Because I think for many psychologists, if you talk about looking at the curriculum and looking at how children are taught, you th- they think you're talking about turning them into an expert teacher. Oh, psychologists don't look at the teaching of reading. We do something uh, more complicated than that. We're, we're assessing the children's cognitive processes. And uh, so I think there's always been a reluctance Plus, there's always, in the past, less so now, there have been tensions with other people in local authorities. There was a time when there were local authority advisors who went around talking about how to teach reading. Following the introduction of the literacy strategy, there were consultants. And they, you know, went around and told everyone what to do. And psychologists didn't have a a place, or, or seemingly didn't have a place, and certainly didn't raise their voice uh, and object to the practices that were taking place. But what was also significant was that there was a time when, uh, and it was pioneered pioneered at the University of Birmingham, at one time there were no post-experience courses for educational psychologists. And Birmingham University appointed the first post-experience tutor, who was probably one of the most charismatic, effective and impressive psychologists I've ever met, called Dave Tweddle. And Lee Pearson was the principal psychologist of Birmingham at the time who helped set up this post. And what Dave did was create, a, a, over a period of a term, he pulled together a small group of psychologists who wanted to do a post-experience course and developed something called DataPack. DataPack was the EP equivalent of DISTAR, and it was about daily uh, assessment and teaching of primary age children. And, and Dave and his team developed curricula for teaching reading, maths, and spelling. 
And the first course that he ran was about developing the materials. The second course was about training EPs to use all the materials. And for a while, most EPs in this country, or certainly most EP services, were using Datapack. The fact that many of your listeners under a certain age will have never heard of Datapack or Dave Twaddle in many ways is, is quite sad because we're still talking about a you know, doing assessment through teaching and direct instruction, and most people won't recognise that the EP service or EP services had a long history of using an assessment through teaching approach. And I think the reason it possibly failed was because, and again, I may be doing a disservice to EPs, um, but I think there's a tendency for everyone to want a package, something you can take off the shelf and take into a school that works, rather than starting from first principles. So what tended to happen was if the child failed on data pack, the assumption was it was the child's problem rather than perhaps an issue with the way that data pack was being implemented. Well, yeah, and it's um, um, before I heard you speak, I hadn't heard of data pack as well. And I, I was part of the first cohort um, in the doctorate course. So I, I, you know, I studied from 2006 to 2009. So it's not something that I heard of. Didn't really hear that much around direct instruction principles or content analysis or even assessment through teaching. So, or maybe I've just maybe I just forgot. I don't know. But um, and I, we are going to talk about these further on in the in the discussion. But one thing I wanted to kind of speak to you, unless uh, you want to say something more about that, was around one of your papers, which I wanted to discuss at the start before we go into the other things, was around. I think you wrote a paper in 1991, 30 years ago, yeah. So, uh, which was titled Special Education Needs or SCND is a discriminatory, is it a discriminatory concept? I think there was a question mark there. There was a question. So, yeah, so it wasn't a, a statement, it was a question. And uh, it, was just, it was a fairly short paper actually, but something that I refer to again and again because I like that kind of critical educational psychology stance anywhere. I also like not being too comfortable in my own thoughts. And maybe that's just a problem with me. I don't know. But I, if I get too comfortable in this job, I feel as if I'm not doing it properly. So, uh, uh, and th- just the kind of question in general, kind of conventional wisdom or orthodoxies is something that I really like doing. Um, but for the listeners who may not be familiar with that paper, is that would it be possible to just kind of discuss that a little bit about what kind of prompted you to write that and something around the contents around that paper? Because I think it links onto the discussions we're going to have because it's one of the first going back to those first principles of how we conceptualise special education needs. So I'd always been uncomfortable with the role of special schools as I saw them. And I wrote a book here that came out, I think, in 1990 with Martin Powell, who, who at the time was one of the principal educational psychologists in Birmingham. And the book was called Teachers in Control, but it wasn't about behavior management. It had nothing to do with behavior. We were looking at how teachers can take professional control over their own working lives and how they could scrutinize evidence and work out um, what what was worth listening to and what wasn't. And we focused a lot of the discussion on values, um, beliefs, and the way that people use language. And after we'd finished the book, I was aware that we hadn't really addressed the issue of special needs. And because of my time working in Walsall and the research I was then beginning to undertake when I was at Warwick, I wrote this article because it 
struck me that special needs was probably discriminatory. The Warnock report, as, as people will know, recommended, or not recommended, identified that potentially one in five children might have a difficulty in learning uh, during their, their time in school. And that seemed to me to set up a self-fulfilling prophecy. And from what I saw, the majority of children, and from the research that came out at the time, the majority of children that were seen to have the label special educational needs came from low-income families, they um, came from ethnic minorities, and they uh, were largely boys. And it seemed that no one was really talking about this uh, because it was acceptable. And we, we didn't seem to have a name for discrimination based on, on disability. And so I wrote the article and talked about the way values, beliefs and language influence the way we talk about children and teaching and learning. And I was suggesting that, in fact, it probably is, in my view, a, a discriminatory concept. It does a vast disservice to large numbers of children. Yeah, because I think inherent in those kind of things is categorization, you know, this thing around categories and categorization, which um, inherently is problematic, you know, because there's huge variance across different dimensions of an individual and any category for the benefits it may give you automatically does you a disservice in some other area or arena. It, it seemed to me that um, the concept of special needs was serving as a psychological defence mechanism for the teaching profession, the psychologists, and for local authorities. Everyone could get away with not teaching 20% of the children because we thought they had special educational needs. And again, it's, there's this recurring theme of not looking at our own behaviour or teachers not looking at their behaviour and the curriculum and how that, that might be impacting on children's learning. And... Um, Ziggy Engelman and Doug Carnine wrote a lot about what they called uh, faulty teaching and they introduced the concept of faultless instruction and argued and demonstrated how you could create curricula that would minimise the likelihood of anyone failing to learn. And so I think, uh, think of the instructional paradox, which is the only way you could ever demonstrate that someone has a difficulty in learning is by basing all your teaching on the assumption that no one has a difficulty. You want to start out and assume everyone will learn. And I'm not saying every, that there aren't such things as difficulties in learning, but you can only identify such children when you have exhausted your current knowledge. Um, and only at that point could you begin to say that perhaps a child will have a difficulty. And I'm not saying that all children learn at the same rate will achieve to the same level. But when it comes to teaching reading and maths, I think it is reasonable to expect that the majority of children um, will be able to learn and master those skills. And the research that I then went on to do at Warwick began to demonstrate that. So I, I, I moved to Warwick in um, uh, 1984. And within a short period of time, I I collaborated with uh, two people in the psychology department. I was based in the education department and collaborated with Gordon Brown and Nick Chater in the psychology department. And our interests coincided. And they were interested in an area called rational analysis, which came from, which was an area in cognitive psychology. 
but it looked at cognitive development in terms of the, the environments that children lived in and experienced, or adults for that matter. And uh, Gordon and Nick couldn't believe how little psychology was operationalized in the classroom. And, and they had the view that we, we knew quite a lot about how people learned. And through our discussions, they couldn't believe that so little was evident in how children were being taught. And there were some very basic principles that we talked about, such as just teaching a small number of optimal skills. They were coming at that from rational analysis, and I was coming at it from direct instruction, because that's what the DI reading curriculum was based on. Engelman and colleagues had taken a database of around 160,000 words and identified the most frequently occurring grapheme phoneme correspondences and focused on teaching those. And we began to do the same, just teaching what is most useful and valuable. Um, and we'll come on perhaps to the content of some of those curricula. But we were fortunate in receiving uh, nearly a million pounds in research grants during the time I collaborated with, with Gordon and Nick. And what we were able to demonstrate was that through teaching and um, using a DI curricula or the principles behind DI curricula, we didn't use DISTAR, but using those principles, aligning them to a number of core um, instructional principles, linking that to the instructional hierarchy and assessment through teaching, we used whole class teaching to teach children. The whole class teaching was differentiated, but we were able to demonstrate that the vast majority of children could learn and we reduced the incidence of difficulties from the typical 20 to 25 percent to 3 percent or less. And depending on where we were working, the figure uh, was lower than 3 percent. But overall, it was around 3 percent, which uh, is a massive reduction in potentially the number of children perceived to have difficulties. But what was perhaps most interesting was that lower achieving pupils in the experimental group were outperforming middle achieving pupils and sometimes higher, higher achieving pupils in the comparison groups. And this was based on teaching early reading skills which were most useful. Exactly. Okay. And the, the other thing that we, that we did that departed from conventional wisdom was we taught reading through real books. We were not asking children to read and we didn't want teachers to use decodable text for a whole variety of reasons, but we thought their quality didn't justify giving them to children. And so we had, did, began to do research to look at real books and which high frequency words appeared most often and which graphing phoneme correspondences appeared most often. So we could um, reassure teachers that if children were taught to read uh, through real books, that they'd get lots of practice at using the, the critical skills that they needed to master. So it'd be interesting to think about that, because obviously I've read your papers around the use of real books and uh, having a database of real books that allowed you to think about which words were coming up again and again and again, which ones were most frequently coming up. But you talk about in your talks about the use of real books so are you saying that there's an optimal number of graphing phoneme correspondences that you have to teach explicitly and high frequency words you have to teach explicitly 
And where you get that practice is not through a scheme of decodable books, but where you practice that skill is reading alongside, using a real book and reading alongside someone who can can scaffold that, can mediate that through like a paired reading, shared reading type of interaction. Is that? Yeah, okay. So that that's right. So the, the National Literacy Strategy came in in 1998. And again, um, people probably don't know that all the debates about reading were, were really instigated by a psychologist in Croydon, Martin Turner, in 1990. He wrote a, a small booklet called Sponsored Reading Failure. And with other psychologists in London, pulled together data from, I think, 10 or 11 local authorities and suggested that the reason and that from their analysis standards were, were falling was that children were being taught to read through real books because there was a big real books philosophy at the time and not enough phonics. And as a result of that, and I won't go into all the reports that then followed, it resulted in the National Literacy Strategy in 98, where there was a much greater focus on teaching phonics than there had been before. And increasingly, and over time, there was a move towards teaching phonics through decodable texts. And uh, Jim Rose published his review in 2006, which was followed by Letters and Sounds in 2007, which moved in that direction. But it wasn't until the coalition government came in that they went the whole way and started recommending synthetic, systematic synthetic phonics and using decodable texts, even though there is no evidence for the use of decodable texts. Uh, even to, to this day, there's no evidence, and there's no evidence that has been published in favour of systematic synthetic phonics. However, putting those issues to one side, the, uh, what, after the NLS came out, there were concerns that standards were not increasing quickly enough. And so the DFEE, held, as they were at that time, held a couple of conferences, one in 99 and one in 2003, where there was a suggestion that teaching analytic phonics was not as successful as teaching synthetic phonics. And um, <clears throat> I contributed to both of those conferences and gave a, a talk in 2003 and began to talk about teaching a small number of optimal skills and linking it through teaching uh, via distributed practice and interleaved learning. And that this combination, it's because it's not just about what you teach, it's about the instructional principles through which the, the, the curriculum is devil, de delivered. So it is far better to teach in small sessions. So the, the literacy strategy taught for an hour a day, and we were, were recommending that teachers taught in three slots uh, for 15 minutes. And all our research was based initially on three sessions of 15 minutes. And we um, compared the Optima reading program as it is now. It used to be called the Early Reading Research. We compared it to the National Literacy Strategy. We compared its impact to conventional teaching. And every time the results were the same. So, yeah, we just taught, um, we teach 100 high-frequency words, 44 of which are phonically regular. We teach just 60 phonic skills and then later some prefixes and suffixes but far less than any other program. And it is synthetic phonics, or systematic synthetic phonics, where children are taught uh, high-frequency words explicitly. They're taught phonic skills explicitly. 
and they're given practice in applying those skills, but only through reading real books. And we have now got a database of around 1,500 real books, which contain 1.5 million words. It's probably the most extensive database of children's literature. And we know that just 16 words account for 30% of all written English. And in fact, we've looked at a database of adult literature, and 32% of adult literature on this database is made up of just 16 words. A hundred words account for approximately 54% of all content of children's literature, but the more you teach, the return um, falls off dramatically. So there's very little value in teaching much more than a hundred high-frequency words. And equally, there's almost no value in teaching more than six default core phonics skills. So we've done an analysis of programs like Read Write Inc and Jolly Phonics and Letters and Sounds and looked at the the lowest frequency, uh, lowest occurring 25 grapheme phoneme correspondences in those programs. And they account for um, probably just over 1% of all the phonically regular words in real books. So children will be spending time having to learn these phonic skills in order to get through the scheme. But once they've got through the scheme and mastered these skills, many of them they'll never need to use again because they occur so rarely in written English. Equally, for the lowest achieving pupils, because, of course, they're learning more slowly than their peers and they only get to read a book when they've mastered the skills for the book they're about to be given, they're learning their skills more slowly than their peers, so they read fewer books than their peers. So not only are they being taught material that is redundant, they're getting very little practice at applying their skills to books. So there's, a, there's, there's almost a kind of a lost opportunity there, isn't there? Because and I, if, I'm, if, I'm, if I'm getting this right, it's teaching the skills that are going to be used most frequently and have the greatest generalizability. And you've established what those skills or bits of knowledge are because you've done a rational analysis, you've done a content analysis, a bit like what you've described there about the first, the 16 words that account for 30 odd percent of the words in this kind of children's database. The next, what was it, 100, I think it was, the next 30? Well, it's the first hump, so you've got yeah. 16, and then the next 84. So you teach 100 altogether, but, but not more than that. And then, Obviously, if you learn this kind of core group of words and sounds, you can access quite a lot of literature, and then the time that's spared up, you can use for vocabulary, or you can do for shared kind of reading. I think when I heard one of your talks before, you gave an example from one of these schemes, the decodable schemes, and it was a Billy Goat Gruff book. Yeah. And you gave the real Billy Goat Gruff book, and actually, in the real book, you counterintuitively or paradoxically, you got more practice of the skills that you were teaching in a much richer narrative than you did in the schemed decodable book. It had fewer words, the sentences were shorter, they didn't really make that much sense. Okay, we, we, we published this particular research in an article called Real, uh, Real Books versus Reading Schemes, a Perspective from Instructional Psychology. I published that with Janet Vuzan in 2009 where we included this analysis of the, the um, phonically regular version of the story, which is called Billy the Kid, 
versus the real book version of the, the three Billy Goats graph. And it's counterintuitive, but the skills that children are taught in the Billy the Kid and that they practice when reading Billy the Kid, they will have more opportunities to practice through using paired reading, which you mentioned earlier, when reading uh, the three Billy Goats graph. And we found this over and over again. If you take a reading scheme version of a fairy tale and compare it to a real books version, children will always have more practice with the real books version. And one of the things that prevents schools using real books is that schools are being told that children must practice reading uh, books that are within their phonic knowledge. In other words, you can't give them books where they may see a grapheme phoneme correspondence that they haven't been taught because they may get confused. And that they are encouraged to read books or they have to read books with 100% accuracy. So children only get a book when they've practiced decoding the words that appear in the, the book out of context. But when they read the book, they read that, the, the entire book with 100% accuracy. So there are several issues around that. But one of them is that children never have to practice their decoding skills while they're being taught to read within the context of a book. They never encounter a word when they're reading that they can't already read. So that they're not learning a, a crucial skill of decoding and recognizing a word is not known, then trying to decode it and work out, is this a word that I know and is this a phonically accurate pronunciation uh, that I've produced? Because one skill that children need when they're using phonics and reading is an ability to work to work out whether what they have decoded is a, is a real word or not. So we did some research on this. We found that when we were working in various parts of the country and the children were practicing synthesis skills, that is putting sounds together to make a word, the, the children would practice saying ba-ath, but pronounce it bath, gut-ath, and pronounce it grass. And we said to them, surely it should be bath and grass. And they said, no, it's our accents. So they were able to say ba-ath, but then get come up with the correct pronunciation. And so we began to do some research on this in the early 2000s. And we took words that, um, that if decoded accurately, would give you a non-word pronunciation. And one of the words that we frequently quote was, was yacht. And if decoded phonically, is that gives you yatched. And what we found, to get a long story short, is we gave children lots of words of this type. We put the words in sentences. And children could actually go from yatched to yacht, but only if the word is, was in their vocabulary knowledge. And so we began to realize that rather than teaching more and more phonics, it was far more important to teach a small amount of phonic knowledge, but then develop their language skills so that children could effectively correct mispronunciations. And then we've done research on this subsequently with Hannah Dyson and, and Charles Hume, where we've taught children to correct mispronunciations so that when they read, if a word doesn't sound like it's the correct word, they can um, make a, a, a correct the pronunciation based on their vocabulary knowledge, which is a really important skill to learn. But children don't get that when they're taught through a reading scheme only when they're taught through real books.
And also, uh, and if you're teaching the sounds that are most highly occurring and have the greatest generalizability, and not the additional ones for the phonics screener check, then you have more time to focus your skills on vocabulary instruction or vocabulary knowledge. And I want to ask you a little bit about the phonics screener check, because you've written about that as well. So, so, so we have. We, we published with, with uh, Helen Wall, my, my colleague, and um, Kat Darnell. We, we did an analysis of the first three years of the phonics screening check between 2002 and 2004. And although the DfE tells schools that there are, here are 85 skills and children can be, could be assessed on any of these skills in the check, and frequency of occurrence in written English will not influence how often they appear in the check, that just was untrue. So the words... So the phonics screener, just for the listeners, so the phonics screener check is a, an assessment that year one students and some year two students, if they don't make a, the, the kind of expected cut-off point, have to do, which analyzes up to 85 graphing phoneme correspondences. Okay. Plus it's also included 11 that have um, not been specified and not necessarily being taught. But that's so there are 85 that could appear, but in fact uh, we've now analysed all eight years of the phonics screening check, where there have been 1,213 graphing phoneme correspondences that have been assessed, and in fact, if children only uh, only need to learn a small number of phonics skills to pass the phonics screening check, so it could be that children are being taught a large number of phonics skills in order to get through the check, and which not only will it not help them get through the check because they don't appear very often, if at all, but it won't help them with their reading. So there are probably large numbers of children who are passing the check um, because they've learnt the ones that occur most frequently, um, but they've then gone on to learn many more than that, and so for some reason, the fact that round about 90% of children have passed the phonic check by the end of year two, but when they get to the end of year six, teachers may have thought, well, these children are now able to read fluently. They've passed the phonic check. However, we usually one, around one in four children are going to secondary school not having uh, achieved the standards set by the government. So... Large numbers of children are still going to secondary school, not reading effectively, despite 11 years of the coalition followed by the Conservative government, despite all the emphasis on teaching systematic synthetic phonics through decodable text, still one in four children, if not more, are failing each year to meet government standards at the end of Key Stage 2. So would a better system be where... Let's say if the year one phonics screener remained, it would assess fewer sounds, the ones that occur more frequently. Well, you can and have that would spare up time for vocabulary, shared reading kind of activities in those early years, rather than use up precious amount of time learning skills that don't appear that often and skills that you're not going to get that much practice with. Well. There are various ways of approaching it, but it, it would be helpful, probably, if what was recognised was that when it comes to writing written English, whether you're writing real books, and the same applies to phonically decodable text, 
and the phonics green, you always have a small number of items that occur over and over again. And there's a high correlation between the items that occur most often in a reading scheme with those that appear in a real book, with those that appear on the, the phonic check. In that written English constrains what you're going to use frequently. And you would imagine that the people who are the authors of the scheme, uh, sorry, the, the check, will have tried to use a wide range of grapheme phoneme correspondences. It's just not possible. Equally, you would assume that people writing a reading scheme um, would also include a wide a, a range of grapheme phoneme correspondences uh, that are taught to have equal representations of all the skills that are taught, but that's just not what happens. So written English, in fact, leads you to only to write with very few grapheme phoneme correspondences, and you're using the same high-frequency words over and over again. So if you wanted to assess children's progress, you would focus on the small number of things, which the check does, but recognise it as such and not spend a lot of time teaching things that are largely redundant, which is you know, a point I've made several times. <clears throat> and I think, from, again, from listening to you or reading your tweets, the, the government recently has got out some kind of criteria that uh, early reading programmes have to meet for them to be used by schools. But actually, I think you've said... That there isn't actually a research that where you can pick out which one, which reading program has a better success rate than another one. So as long as it's got some, can you can you talk about that a little bit? I don't want to put. Yes. Okay. So in in 2021, the DFE has produced three documents, which are going to have a huge bearing on how children are being taught to read in the future and which children are perceived to have a difficulty in learning. The first document was that um, they issued 16 cr core criteria that publishers of synthetic phonic programs must meet. And all schools are being encouraged to use one of what are being termed validated programs. So the DFE have set up a panel of experts. They won't reveal who the experts are, but there's a panel of experts scrutinizing all the schemes that publishers have submitted to determine whether or not they are um, a good example of teaching systematic synthetic phonics. But there isn't any evidence that any programme that's currently on the list is effective. And it's very interesting because the uh, Educational Endowment Foundation in 2016 commissioned an evaluation of Read Write Inc. Now, Read Write Inc., which is written by Ruth Miskin that many people will have come across, is used in 25% of primary schools. And it's used in 24 out of 34 English hubs. And Ruth Miskin has provided the training on teaching phonics to all 34 English hubs. And the research that was commissioned in 2016, which was completed in 2018, should have been published in 2019, 2020. And it was due to be published in the autumn of this year. And I was told in June of this year that it would definitely be published in the autumn, but in fact it's been postponed for another two years. It won't now be published till 2023. So there's no evidence that the government's flagship programme, plus all the other synthetic phonic programmes, have an impact on children's learning. 
And there are many flaws in the programs which account for the kind of difficulties that children will have. And this is something that I think educational psychologists should be aware of when they're identifying whether or not a child has a difficulty in learning. Two other documents that have been prepared, one is something called the Reading Framework, which again reinforces the role of synthetic phonics in teaching reading. And then there's a, a, a third document, which is um, the, which are the criteria that those involved in initial teacher education will have to make sure that those entering the teaching profession can meet. And again, it's all about synthetic phonics. So students are getting no information on theories of reading. They're not taught about the different ways in which reading can be taught. It's all about you have to just teach synthetic phonics in this way through one of these programmes. And it's in this way that seems to be a crucial bit, because you're actually saying that synthetic phonics, to an extent, is important, but um, there's a, it's targeting it where we focus on the letter, so, sorry, the grapheme phoneme correspondences that are most useful and have the greatest generalizability. Okay, so if you start from the perspective of instructional psychology, which is where I would start, which is influenced by rational analysis, that's exactly right. You start, you, you teach what is most useful because that will give you the greatest returns. And then you, you move on and, and teach other things that are really useful, such as vocabulary knowledge, developing children's um, lang uh, general knowledge in order that they can make good sense of what they read. And the, the alternative is where the, those designing schemes say, well, there are 44 phonemes in, in spoken English and we need to now represent all those phonemes with graphemes. So they end up teaching uh, and creating text that reflects the free, those um, grapheme phoneme correspondences. So this, their starting point is entirely different. That, that's yeah, absolutely right. So... This kind of takes me then on to a bit back to your journey. And uh, I'm currently reading a book alongside your one of four books I'm currently reading at the moment. And uh, that is your book called The Learning Revolution, um, where you analyze um, teaching techniques used by Michelle Thomas on teaching language or foreign languages. Can you tell us a your story around how you came to write that book and how it was commissioned, because I've, I've heard it before, but um, I find it a fascinating kind of story. So. There was a documentary on BBC Two a number of years ago called The Language Master, which featured Michelle Thomas, who um, was a refugee during the war, he was born in um, Poland, but moved around and, and ended up speaking nine languages, and after the war emigrated to America and he believed the one way of preventing anything like the Holocaust occurring again was to make sure everyone was well educated. And, he th and at the time, people were saying, well, children will only learn what matters to them and what they're interested in. And he then decided, OK, I will teach children in um, Los Angeles, inner city Los Angeles, in the most deprived areas. I will teach them foreign languages. Many of these children hadn't even been to the beach in Los Angeles, let alone to France or Spain. And he was able to devise a method of teaching that, became, that was seen to be very effective, um, attracted a lot of attention, and then very well-known public figures were taught to read 
sorry, talk to speak to speak foreign languages. Woody Allen was one. Grace Kelly was another. And they learned in sort of eight hours how to be, and they became fluent. And in The Language Master, it featured Michelle Thomas going into a comprehensive school in northern London and doing the same. And he kicked off by removing all the tables and the chairs that the children would normally sit in, brought in sofas so they felt comfortable. And he just said, look, the responsibility for your learning lies with me. I don't want you to do any homework. I don't want you to do any mental rehearsal. I just want you to come to the sessions, practice here, and you will learn effectively. And the, inevitably, he was hugely successful. The children reached O-level standard in a very short period of time. And the, the French teacher of the children was, was staggered at the progress that the children had made. And Hodder had been asked, wanting Michelle Thomas to publish these um, tapes or his way of teaching. And they asked me before doing so, could I explain why his programs were so effective? And what I found when watching um, The Language Master, they gave me access to his programs and it followed DI principles. It followed a rational analytic approach in that he identified those skills that were most useful. And those were the ones that he taught to the students. And um, the book is explaining how the principles of rational analysis and direct instruction can be applied to teaching modern foreign languages. And he was teaching children, French, uh, not just children, adults as well, French, German, Spanish and Italian. And I focused largely on Spanish, but with some Spanish, and explaining how his analysis of spoken Spanish um, was reflected in these core instructional principles derived from DI and rational analysis. And then, so I, the book was based on that. Yeah, because I think um, as I'm reading through the book, he he took, well, you talk about that actually focusing on the words that are used most frequently. <laughs> so I think he talks about um, a lot of, you know, I think up to about 2,000 words are used consistently in conversational language yeah. and actually focusing your skills on there um, is really, really useful. You, you've, I think you've spoken about instructional principles. Do you want to tell us a little bit about what those are? Um, well, uh, I've mentioned some of them. Distributed practice, which is teaching in for short periods of time rather than mass practice. Interleague learning, which is mixing the new skill with the old. So typically when children are being taught a skill, they given the new skill, they practice that. When it's mastered, they go on to something else. They then practice that and they never integrate new learning with previously taught material. And that is known as interleaved learning. And it, when children forget previously learnt material, that is called catastrophic interference. And this process of interleaved learning minimises that there are um, this contextual diversity, which refers to children seeing the same word or the same grapheme phoneme correspondence, but in lots of different contexts. So they become aware it's not the, the font size or the font color that matters. It's the sequence of letters in a word or the grapheme phoneme correspondence um, appearing in lots of different places that becomes really val um, valuable. There's another called the importance of representation, which means that 
the children, the text that children are taught to read with should reflect the text that they will then go on to read as they become more experienced readers. So if you only give children phonically decodable texts, for those children that don't see many books in the home, they will then um, overgeneralize and think that everything can be decoded phonically, but they won't have acquired the skill of uh, phonic self-correction. They won't have learned that because for them, for many children, and it's interesting if people go on to school websites before they visit a school and look at whether or not on the website does it distinguish between phonics and reading because most schools have one section of their website that focuses on how they teach phonics and another menu on the website that focuses on reading and there doesn't seem to be any sense in which the two come together. The, the only reason for being taught phonics is in order that it's a skill that helps you learn to read. So when the government talks, and many people talk about reading, it has three different meanings. Some, sometimes people talk about reading and it's about decoding. Sometimes it's about reading for meaning. And sometimes it's about comprehension. And if you follow some reading schemes, the children have to read um, one of the phonically decodable texts three times. The first time for accuracy, then for fluency, and then for understanding. At least they don't make this particular program doesn't make any pretense that by the third time children will be reading it for pleasure. Yeah, and actually you've and again there is when I was looking at the latest Pearls data, I've forgotten what the acronym Pearl stands for now, but it's the international kind of assessment or, or analysis around reading for year five students, I think. Um, in this in our country it's year five. It's an international yeah. assessment. Is given every five years. Yeah. And when I was looking at the, and I think one of the, not only assess the reading, but they ask reading, they try to analyse reading habits to kind of self-reported questionnaires. Do you read for pleasure? And I think consistently, although on a technical level, the reading might be kind of still up there, might be above the kind of median score. But when you ask in England, when you ask this sample of students in England, whether they read for pleasure, that is consistently going down. That's right. That, that we have one of the lowest percentages of children enjoying reading. And what is also interesting, in 2016 in the Pearls assessment, England came eighth. Four of the seven countries that came ahead of England, their children enjoyed reading, in, um, enjoyed reading less than those in England. So there's a potential trade-off, and it may be that those countries that focus on accelerating children's progress and making sure that they do well on the PEARLS assessment uh, do so, but th there is a, a consequence, which is that children just don't enjoy reading. And, it's, uh, and I, love the, I love your phrase there, trade-off, because I think when we're thinking about evidence-informed practice, if we look at it in a really narrow kind of way, and we're not really looking at the wider consequences, it's the trade-offs we need to look at. It's the opportunity cost we need to look at. That's really helpful. Okay, so this, this leads me... To, there are two things I, I, I'd like to, to say at this point. One is that, uh, and for those, it may well be that for many people, much of what I've talked about doesn't kind of resonate because it's not the kind of psychology that they're interested in. <laughs> but, it's, but for me, and it goes back to the article on special needs, is it a discriminatory concept? At the moment, there are probably far too many false positives. 
there are probably far too many children where assessments are requested because of difficulties in learning to read or maths, who, if taught well in the first instance, would not have any problems whatsoever. And at no point does it seem that they're getting the teaching that they need. So much of an EP's time is taken up with the needs of children who, who need to be taught more effectively in the ways that I've been talking about. But because so much of their time is spent on the false positives, they have less time to spend on those children that really do need the expertise of an EP. And so the ones who really need the time and the expertise don't get it because that EP's attention is focused elsewhere because of the ways in which local authorities or private services are working. And so I, I, I would always think it would be a good idea, whether EPs are working for a local authority or independently, that they collaborate. They will work with each other. And the, the small number of people who have the interest focus on literacy, allowing the other EPs in a service to focus on the pupils with the most severe needs. And that, that would be one thing, Nazam. The other thing I would say is that I, I a theme that's running through what I've been, we've been talking about in our previous discussions is how little of what happens in schools is evidence-based. And there is a vast amount of research in psychology looking at the teaching of reading. And there, <coughs> there are people now that are in the various publications that have, in the, that have appeared in the last 18 months looking at the science of reading, where really well-known academic psychologists, Mark Seidenberg, um, Tim Shanahan, are saying that what is really important is not that psychologists look at underlying skills that may influence reading, that they begin to look at what works in the classroom, what leads children to make the greatest progress. And this is where educational psychologists have an, a huge contribution to make in that nowadays there are no other there are no literacy consultants uh, there are no advisors there are no other people going into schools telling people how to teach effectively and certainly what is there isn't evidence-based yet psychologists have access to a wealth of data based on their training potentially about what works and will be can present that to teachers in a way that um they would find rewarding because at the point at which they refer a child um, as having a difficulty, it is likely that whatever they've been doing hasn't worked. Well, clearly it hasn't worked. And maybe many teachers would be keen to find out and introduce a methodology that would work because whatever works for the lowest progress readers will work for everyone else. And so it gives, gives EPs a way into working with schools on a whole school basis in a way that is preventive. I accept that many EPs don't want to do that, but I'm sure there are some EPs who are wanting to work in a preventive way. And one way in is to work with the most vulnerable children, show how you can, your, uh, your expertise and knowledge facilitates their progress, and that that then will transfer to other areas of, of work. Yeah, it's interesting, and um, it's something that actually I did. I think you're going to be proud of me, actually. Something I did this afternoon was uh, there was um, a school that wanted to help seek my help to think about some of their year three students who they felt as if aren't making any progress, or they seem to be kind of stuck 
in their progress. And what I didn't want to do is do four bits of individual type of casework and say the same thing again and again. Or make a list of recommendations from a menu of different recommendations. I really didn't want to do that. So today I met with the Senko, the year three teacher, and the deputy head teacher who's in charge of curriculum and literacy, and basically talked about the points that you've raised today around the principles of instructional psychology, content analysis, and something we haven't really mentioned today was that the Pareto's principle. And we'll talk about that after I've kind of just kind of finished this. But uh, And then, after discussing these things and giving them examples, and again, we'll talk about the examples, so it's not just about reading these principles can be applied to. There's lots of different areas. And then let those ideas kind of incubate and get those individuals or the key stakeholders to generate ideas themselves. And actually, we've got another meeting in January where they are... The, the task that they've got or they're going to think about is identifying the skills which are the most useful and getting away from, and I don't blame teachers for this because it's the kind of air you breathe, the water you swim in, you don't really recognise it, but get them to get away from this idea of curriculum coverage, curriculum coverage, curriculum coverage, and get them to think about what is the most useful skill for these students to learn and almost getting them not to even think about any underlying diagnosis or labels that some of those students have and getting them to focus on the program that you're delivering. Is it worth it? What are the mastery tests along it? What are the, how, what are the, what are the placement decisions for using it and getting them to really focus their attention on that. So I was, I was thinking about you this afternoon and obviously we're talking today as well. Okay. So that you've mentioned one thing that is, that is particularly relevant to our discussion, and that is teachers' focus when teaching on curriculum coverage. So they're told that you, they've got two years to teach all the core phonics skills that children need. And therefore, they work out what they're going to teach when based on the calendar and the time of year. And, OK, I need to have taught this by the Christmas of reception, this by the end of year one, this by the autumn term of year Sorry, this by the end of um, reception, this by the end of the autumn term in year one. And they move children on according to the time of year and their schedule for covering the curriculum. They don't do it in relation to the skills that children have mastered. They don't think about, I will only move this ch child on when they have mastered what I have been teaching. And therefore, if children, for whatever reason, haven't mastered core skills during the autumn term of reception, they will find it very difficult to catch up or latch on to what is being taught because the pace of teaching exceeds the rate at which they are learning. And when you think that there's no such thing as a level playing field when children start school, people talk about the language gap. You know, it, it is alleged by uh, Hart and Risley that when children come from a, a language-rich background, they will have heard 32 million more words at the point of starting school than children from a, a less enriched language background. Whether it's 32 million words or not is less, not the issue really. What we can all recognise is that some children have far more advanced language skills when they begin school, which helps them enormously when they start learning to read. Surveys done in London show that uh, large numbers of children in, in London don't have books in the home. 
so that children who've never seen a book before or had a book read to them, when they start learning to read at school, are at a very different starting point to those children that have got books at home and have heard lots of stories and have read. And therefore, it can't be assumed that their learning at that point will be the same as everyone else. So mastery learning is another core concept that is really essential. And, and you talk, sorry, you, and you talk about bridging that gap through that mastery learning rather than thinking about closing the gap. It's about how do you bridge that and how do you, how do you almost accelerate that progress within that same time frame that you have? Because you can't create more hours. You can't just keep adding to the curriculum with the same methodology. Um, so I know we've spoken a lot about reading. Does, we can, you can mention the Pareto's principle of the content analysis. Does that apply in lots of different areas like spelling or maths or language acquisition we talked briefly about? It, it, ap- it applies across the board. So Pareto's law uh, or principle known as the 80-20 principle, also, also covered by Zip's law, says that um, it, any item, you only, uh, certain items, will have a small number of items will have a huge impact and a large number of items will have a negligible impact. One example that I would always give is earthquakes. 20% of earthquakes cause 80% of the damage and then you have a large number of earthquakes that are barely noticeable. Um, It's the same with speeding offences. 20% of motorists generate 80% of the reading uh, speeding fines. And so when we were doing our research, as well as being informed by rational analysis, we thought, well, let us check whether Pareto's law applies to written English. And, and it does. Small amount of information enables you to learn the majority of what you're going to uh, require. And, and similarly we, with spelling patterns. Spelling numbers. applies equally to spelling. And Helen and I, Helen Wall, my colleague um, who worked with me on a lot, most of the research that I've done, we designed a, a writing curriculum, again, using looking at what is generalizable. So instead of saying, well, these are the skills you need to write poetry, this is what you need for um, fiction, this is what you need for nonfiction, we said, what are the core skills that children need across any kind of writing? And we identified seven core skills that we tested out through research to see whether or not if children were taught those core skills, that were generalizable, would that help them write effectively across the board for different genres? When it came to maths, we did the same. We were influenced strongly by the analysis that Engelman and Carnine had done, but I think we've extended it, particularly when it comes to teaching fractions and percentages. And the old way of teaching or using task analysis is that people would take addition subtraction, multiplication and division and analyse them separately without reference to each other. So they wouldn't say, right, what skills are required to master all of these operations? And when you do that, you end up with an entirely different curriculum when you're teaching something that is generalisable across all four operations than when you analyse each of them individually. And so that's direct instruction uh, has particular uh, power when it comes to teaching maths and accelerating progress. Fantastic, yeah. Um, 
I really, you know, enjoyed this chat so much, but then I think uh, it's, it's an area of kind of real interest anyway. Amongst other areas, I don't want to limit myself, you know, I'm an educational psychologist, so uh, one of the beauties of this job is to have lots of different interests in lots of different areas. Um, it's been a fascinating talk. I wanted to kind of finally end with um, the EP, you know, we've hopefully largely got an audience who may be interested in educational psychologists or might have some aspirations to become an educational psychologist. And you're right, sometimes the interest in instructional psychology or precision teaching or rational analysis may not be as much as we'd like to see, especially for people who are kind of interested in it. And this podcast is about hope. How does this link with what your understanding of hope and thinking around that is it goes back to something i said earlier and themes that we've already discussed i think what i'm really talking about is first of all how eps can draw on psychological knowledge in their work when they're assessing and perhaps intervening with children who are perceived to have a difficulty in learning and it shouldn't just be about some form of assessment that is designed to diagnose a difficulty. It's about an intervention over time where um, teachers and psychologists are evaluating whether or not pupils are learning. But they do that in order that overall EPs can spend more time focusing on the pupils with the greatest need. And that might vary in different areas, but it's to try and ensure you're not dealing with false positives and being sidetracked almost into doing that, because I would imagine for many EP services, much of their time ends up to being assessing children with a, a literacy difficulty. Um, maybe there are other areas as well, but the principles that I'm talking about would apply to behaviour as well. You know, children who are seem to have ADHD, or the increasing number of children who are diagnosed as being autistic. Within those populations, I'd still be talking about some kind of equivalent of assessment through teaching where you apply an intervention so that irrespective of a potential label, you're trying to intervene to make sure that it's those children who have the greatest need get the help from psychologists. So I'm saying overall that there is a huge role for educational psychologists to play in, in schools. And that's why over my time uh, in the profession, I think I'm one of the people who's been around longest, who, who is still talking to educational psychologists who hasn't moved on to another role or has, uh, is no longer uh, having discussions with the profession and future uh, those who are entering the profession. Because I think there's so much that they could um, achieve and be engaged with that would be enormously beneficial to children and that they've got the knowledge and the expertise to do it. I think at the moment, in many cases, much of their time is spent perhaps writing. I mean, I don't know. Uh, I'm not really in touch with a lot of psych educational psychologists, but I'd be curious to know how much time um, people listening to the podcast spend on some kind of assessment using standardized assessments which they then go off and where they then go off and write a report uh, which may or may not be contested when it is contested they then have to spend more time uh, preparing their arguments to demonstrate that they've been competent and so a, a lot of the time they have is not devoted to uh, applying psychology to children's learning 
And, th and that's why I went into the profession. That's what excited me and, and still does. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think nationally there's a, there's a rise in educational health and care plan requests and that, if you work for a local authority, that sucks away a lot of your time. There's a, I don't know, I suppose the services have to look at their own assessment tools and which ones get used most frequently, which ones are signed out most frequently and make a judgment on that. Um, I think there's definitely scope for learning about or being familiar with this kind of language around rational analysis, Pareto's principle, um, generalizable skills and knowledge. Because if anything, it, it helps for me. It's a social justice kind of thing. I know lots of people bang that word around and this, other people might not see this, but what is more hopeful than teaching people to read and what kind of access you can get through reading? And what is more hopeful in teaching people to read in the most efficient way where their joy for reading, their enjoyment for reading is enhanced and you're creating this kind of reading identity, so definitely around that. And I hope people who are listening to it do think about the various kind of projects and things they can do in collaboration with teachers around using these principles, which you're right, which transcends different areas of work. I think I get a bigger return knowing this knowledge because it can transcend lots of different areas of work. And I really like, I suppose, executive psychological principles that give me a better return. You know, maybe I'm being lazy, I don't know, but I see it as kind of efficiency, really. I mean, I mean, it could be. It may well be that people think, oh, well, actually, you know, he's already acknowledged he doesn't have much contact with psychologists. He's really out of touch. He doesn't know what's happening in the real world. But that's always been the case. Even when I started using precision teaching way back in the um, late 70s and early 80s, Every argument that people have put to me, it doesn't change over time. Oh, well, we don't have time to do this. It's um, not realistic. It's not what the schools want. It's not what my employer wants. I have to do this. Everyone always has a very good excuse why they can't do something that is about applying psychology in schools, trying to actually help children who are vulnerable learn, whether it be in terms of behavior or reading or maths. And I'm suggesting that psychologists have got an enormous potential to intervene constructively on the behalf of the most vulnerable children in our schools so that they get a better deal. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So finally, just ending with, you know, what, what kind of things are you kind of working on at the moment? Um, and... Um, hopefully see you at the next AEP conference, which is hopefully face-to-face -face and, you, you know, you know, group of people getting together face-to-face, i.e. conferences, was a really good thing in the past. So hopefully those will continue. But what's on the, what's in the kind of, what kind of things are you going to be doing? I'm primarily writing up much of the research that I've done in recent years and um, trying to get it published, as well as doing some consultancy work and small amounts of research in schools. So Fantastic. very much more of the same, but on a smaller scale, but, but focusing more on publishing. Um, and I, I potentially writing, a, a, doing a, a rewrite of the learning revolution where it focuses more on uh, reading and maths and not just foreign languages. Now, absolutely fantastic. I think that kind of nicely brings us to a close for the, for the discussion. I've really enjoyed it. The time has gone really, really fast. And uh, 
hopefully the listeners will be able to take something from it and get in touch. I know you're on Twitter at, I think it's, your handle's at Optima. Yeah, it is. Well, we'll kind of link you on with, uh, with Tim, Tim Cox's kind of podcast on Agents of Hope anyway. So hopefully you'll get um, Jonathan's Twitter handle on that. So uh, thank you so much for listening and really thank you. really grateful for you being a guest. Well, thank you also, Nazan, for inviting me for all the discussions we've had in recent years. And I've really enjoyed chatting to you again, as always. Thank you very much. Thank you.